Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Welcome back, my friends, to yet another episode of On The Side. Today's guest is the brilliant and truly ultimate badass Laura DiPasquale, Master Sommelier and Senior Vice President of Sales and Commerce Operations, Artisanal Wine Division for Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. If you know, you know. That's leading beverage alcohol distributor globally. As the 13th woman to achieve the title of Master Psalm and earn her diploma since the start of the MS exam, she's also an educator, lecturer, speaker, examiner, and judge. I mean, badass judge for the court of the Master Sommeliers and conducts wine tastings and seminars at numerous high profile events here in the US and globally. Laura's extremely important and very, very busy, but on top of all of these various boards, the various boards that she serves on and projects she works on, she's also a contributing writer for Terroir Sense Wine Review. Her digital content series is deep diving on hyper-local food regions. That's where we actually kicked off our conversation, so you'll hear that in the interview. If you are at all curious about what it means to be a master psalm, what the exam is like, what it entails, we kind of got into to some of the <laughs> to some of the questions asked on this exam, and let me tell you, it is specific. Or if you are feeling like an outsider in your current workplace or the industry in which you work, or if you're trying to redefine the role of work in your life or refocus your own career trajectory, this episode is a thousand percent for you. We had the best time chatting. um, And also, I just feel like I learned so much from just listening to Laura. So I know that there is something in this episode for everyone, but you will definitely love this if you love food, if you love wine, if you're curious about what the difference is between being a sommelier or a master sommelier, you will love this episode. I'm also going to answer what foods are considered alkaline and should you drink alkaline water about halfway through the episode. If you have not yet checked out the On The Side YouTube channel, please, please check it out. I beg you. I'm not begging. I'm just asking nicely. Please will you go check out the On The Side YouTube channel. It's youtube.com, On The Side with Jackie London. Just have a little look-see. See what you think. And if you have yet to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the On The Side with Jackie London podcast on Apple, please go ahead and rate us five stars and leave a kind review or any type of feedback would be most welcome and encouraged. All right, enjoy Laura De Pasquale, Master Sommelier, and I will see you on the other side. Laura DiPasquale, welcome <laughs> to On the Side. What a pleasure. A lady in red also today with the turquoise jewelry. It's very chic, I feel. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Just came back from Montana where I added to my turquoise collection. And so now I I'm just sporting it every day. It's amazing. Wait, so let's start with what you were doing in Montana. I would say this is not what many of us 
go to Montana for. No. Right? Yeah. So but we my, should. Mom, my mom's <laughs> from Montana and as New York and East Coast as I am, most people do not know that I spent almost every summer of my childhood in Montana wow. and it was not cool then. I actually totally resented it. Right? Um, and then I've been back there many times as an adult, including with my husband fly fishing and doing intro courses for the court of master sommeliers. So my mom wanted to do this trip literally around Montana where we started in Billings, worked our way up the Western part of the Rockies to Glacier Park, went to where she was born, which is this tiny town called Cutbank, circled back down through Great Falls and ended in Billings for two weeks. So we did this trip. My sister joined us. So it was the three of us. We were no more than two nights in any place, which included one night glamping in Glacier Park, wild. What was Um, it like? Wait, I got to stop you with glamping. I'm sorry. We need to take that down a little detour here. What was it like? So it was pretty wild, right? So, you know, first of all, I think glamping is Literally. like staying at a Hampton Inn. Like that's my Same. definition of I absolutely it. agree. I mean, say, uh, glamping is a motel. <laughs> it's a motel, right? So this was truly glamping. So it's in West Glacier, maybe 10 miles from there from the entrance, maybe 15 Yeah, in the middle of nowhere, literally. Right. And so there's these 15 domes. We rented one that sleeps three and then like 20 cabins. And so we had like a deluxe glamper. We pull up and they don't look very big. Right. So like when you pull up and you look at them externally, you're like, what? Huh. Right. Huh. But when you, actually, right, when you actually go in, it's a two story loft with a clear ceiling so that you can gaze at the stars and there's a telescope there so you can actually like really gaze at the stars it was the best night of sleep we ever got but the best part was we're in the middle of nowhere there's no restaurants there's no food there's like a little tavern attached to this camp site glamp site cabin site so we go in and they have a sign up saying sorry no cook this is what's available so it was like basically Whoa. frozen pizzas reheated and some type of barbecue chicken sandwich and potato chips. But they had really good cocktails. What? So, How? So, this is, it's so unexpected and exciting. I right. mean, that just like took this from glamping to Hampton Inn, actually. Yeah. <laughs> if only they no. could have a great so, cocktail. You know, I'm collecting material and photographs yeah. to write my articles for Terroir Sense Wine Review. And so they have all these huckleberry cocktails. And one of the articles that I'm writing is on huckleberries and all the different incarnations of huckleberries because they're a native plant to Western Montana, Western Canada, and Washington and North Idaho. Um, They can't be cultivated. So I'm like writing a story on huckleberry jam and huckleberry milkshakes and huckleberry baking and huckleberry cocktails, right? So they had huckleberry Huckleberry margaritas. What? Yes. Huckleberry margaritas. And they had games, right? So they had like, so like people are in there and they're kind of like, mm, all like grumpy gusses, <laughs> not really talking to each other. So I grab a deck of cards. My mother's never played cards. She's 81 years old. She's never learned how to play any card games in her entire life. So we're teaching her how to play gin. We haven't really eaten very much. My Hammered. sister and my mother 
down their cocktails because huckleberry margaritas are delicious, right? Have a couple of rounds and they <laughs> are hammered. So I have blackmail videos of my mother. We had a swing chair in our in our glamper, literally <laughs> sitting in the swing chair, <laughs> screaming, <laughs> I cannot wait to show it at Christmas. <laughs> On the big screen. Just, On the big screen. It's happening. I'm upset to not have at least been FaceTimed for like I just and I'll just be a fly on the wall. I just want to watch this start to devolve, but but also elevate. I think it's both. I think it's both at the same time. <laughs> it was pretty epic, I have to tell you. I mean, my sister was hammered. There's another video of her, like, you know, talking about how drunk she is in the dark. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's so hilarious. It's probably the funniest night we had of the trip. We had a couple of really funny yeah. nights and a lot of um just a lot of ac- happy accidents, right? Like right. when we got to Billings, they had this big festival, Burn the Point which my mother and my uncle told me was kind of like the makeout thing, right? That Whoa. they did in the 50s. Burn they, the Point is what it was called. It's called Burn the Point. They do it twice a year. And it's a classic antique car show parade. And then- How cool is that? It what? was so cool. And then they block off this, this street and have a live band playing country Western music. They were awesome. And people were boot scooting and- two-stepping and doing all kinds of dances I can't do. And we just like stumbled into it. I mean, there were a lot of moments like that on the trip. It was pretty memorable. I have this image of your mom being like in the swing chair, but not in the glamper being like, wee, but in the parade, like maybe yeah. just in the car show. Oh, That's fantastic. It was Can we great. go back to, to huckleberries for a second? What mm-hmm. do they taste like? So huckleberries, well, they're very good for you. Yeah, right? they they're sure are. They're filled with antioxidants and vitamin C um, and iron, believe it or not. They look like yeah. blueberries, but they're more tart, right? Okay. So they, they really like to eat them on their own is a little puckery, right? Yeah. Um, they're not sweet, but to put them in something and they're totally versatile, right? So you can put right. them in like, just like you use a blueberry, like huckleberry pancakes or huckleberry syrup or huckleberry jam or huckleberry milkshakes or, or huckleberry, huckleberry margaritas. <laughs> <laughs> and they're delicious and they're beautiful. Like the color that the juice gives is this like beautiful indigo color that, you know, really makes things extra special. So the first uh, column for Laura, the food and wine explorer is what my column is called. Wait, stop. That's great. I like that so much. Okay. So that's the first column, but, but what about the lobster? What about the lobster column? The lobster diaries. Yeah. So I did that midsummer with mom again, and we went up the coast of Maine. We started in, well, we started in Portland really. And then we drove up we stayed in Booth Bay Harbor, then Camden, then Belfast. Then we circled into Augusta because she knew a place that was like a not miss. And we had lobster rolls all over the place. And I wrote um, six columns, six columns, six days, basically, of the food and wine diaries, the lobster roll adventure, including I rented, I chartered a, a schooner, a 22 foot schooner just for the two of us. And brought in Camden and brought a picnic lunch 
with um, lobster rolls. And then I paired them. I did researched and talked to people in different wine shops in Portland. Okay. And then as we drove up and I purchased local main beverages. So local wines made from rhubarb or wild blueberries, mead. I tried, we tried some natural ciders, all locally produced in Maine. And so we kind of had a battle, right? Like which beverage, a classic wine, like a Chablis or a uh, white burgundy or an Albarino yeah. from Spain versus the classic main beverage and um, pair them with the different lobster rolls. So, and the different lobster rolls were from different local restaurants or did you yeah. make any of these? No, I didn't make any of them. They were all from different, pretty well-known lobster shacks. And I did a lot of research, you know, yeah. on which ones I wanted to stop at. And then, you know, you start talking to people. We we had a mishap, right? So we were driving and a happy we, accident. Let's say. Ha- well, we got a flat Not tire. Not so happy, right? Oh God, we had a flat tire, which involved getting towed, and my mother having to buy a whole new set of tires for her car. But we had like the nicest, kindest most unbelievable tow truck driver that was not like going to leave us by off on the side of the road, like drove us around until he found where we could get a new set of tires. They would install them that day. And so he, as a local started calling friends while he's driving right. us around, finding tires, getting like the skinny on where do the locals go, right? Like where do real Mainers go? Wait, so this day? did become an actual happy accident. That's insane. So what, so what was the big tip off? Well, so the big tip off, everybody, every blog, every column, yeah. every list you see says you got to go to Reds in Wiscasset, right? Got to go to Reds, got to go to Reds, got to go to Reds. And so Reds was on my list, right? Okay. Turns out there's a Facebook page called Give Reds the Finger. <laughs> <laughs> Give Reds the Finger. Because the Facebook page. The locals wow. hate this place because it's US one, so it's one lane, right, right in each right. direction. And the summertime lineup of tourists and food adventurers going to Reds stops traffic in Wiscasset for like 30 minutes. And it turns out that the lobster rolls, the lobster itself, is frozen lobster brought in from Canada. It's not Excuse even Maine lobster. Me. Right. Then what's the point of being in Maine? You could exactly. just go, you could go to Lima and just order it. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I'm getting upset. I'm throwing electronics. <laughs> I, so what? So, so we decided to scratch reds from the list. We did drive by reds and Proceeded to follow the Facebook page instructions. <laughs> exactly. Right. Dave reads the finger and then you post it on the page. Right? Like, it's just a brilliant. This is a brilliant. It's, brilliant. it's like the greatest thing. <laughs> this is just, a, I can't wait to see this. I'm going to look this up. I'm going to look this up later today. It's just pictures. This Facebook page is dedicated to giving reds the actual finger. So really it's just individuals holding up their middle finger, yep. saying, why did you leave our yep. glorious state of lobsters yep. to go to Canada for lobsters? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they're wonderful, but like you're in Maine. I'm yeah. upset about that. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on this one? Because this is not a Maine thing, but I mean, let's, let's take it there for a second. Hot buttered lobster roll from Connecticut or a cold lobster roll from Maine? So... We talk, I talk about this in the article, right? So we did both, right? We had like the classic 
cold lobster kind of salad. And then, and then, you know, you have to talk about the ratio of bread to lobster, right? Cause that's yes. key versus the hot buttered lobster. And some lobster shacks we went to gave you a choice, some specialized one way or the other, and some only offered one or the other. My personal preference, hot butter. No really? Question. I didn't think you were going to say that. Not better. Wow. Without because it's because it's just more like it's more like a meal. I feel like there's a little bit of a like there's this lightness summary thing happening with the cold lobster with mayo. Maybe that's off. But I don't yeah. know. Now I feel like now I'm I'm thinking about it and hot buttered sounds so good and I but I would normally go with a cold mayo. So I just thought first of all for for wine pairing, it's better. Yeah. Right. Okay. Why? You have like that layer of fat and you have that umami that's coming hey. from the butter. Right. Yeah. So for wine pairing and, bev- and alcoholic beverage pairings, it's better for, I think for the lobster, it's better. Right. Because it just yeah. seems to me to bring up the brininess, right. Cause you have this like competitive flavor thing going on between umami and that's salt. So true. Right. So, That's so true. And I never even thought of that. That's so true. I'm such what, a So what was the... <laughs> Listen, Laura has also polled the entire state of Maine. So if you live in Maine and are listening to this and you haven't spoken to Laura, <laughs> it was only because of the flat tire. That It was oh. only just because of that little time suck of the flat tire. So where did we land on the best wine pairing for something that was the hot buttered lobster versus the best for the cold lobster roll? And was there any any moment where the actual more esoteric or more interesting, like the ciders, the local um, spirits, whatever else was involved in this? Is there anywhere where those won out? over the yeah. classics. Okay. Shockingly, there were. So really the classic winner is white burgundy. And I have to say yeah. from a wine perspective, I stacked the deck, right? Because I really, <laughs> I shipped the wines up to my mom's house. She did it right. Right. Yes. So Not I really had some, some really special wines. I had um, Doe Ferrero's Albarino Cepas Velas. And Cepas Velas mm-hmm. is a single vineyard with vines that are a hundred years old or older that are taller than me. I've been in that vineyard and and they're literally taller than me. And that wine is super, super limited and really an extraordinary wine. That wine was an extraordinary pair. And I shipped up some really wonderful white burgundies, some Chassagne Montrachet, Premier Cru level. Um, So that's like the classic pairing, but there were some real main surprises. So we had a lavender scented mead, which is a honey fermented beverage, not sweet, to dry because I really spoke to these two women at the Portland wine. Sh- it's literally called the old port wine shop in Portland, Maine. Um, and they, I'm like, oh. I'm interested in these, but I need it to be dry. And they recommended this, this one. And it was amazing. Um, and so that actually beat, I forget what the wine that it actually beat out. Oh, it beat out a Godeo from Spain. Um, wow. And then we had a naturally fermented apple cider that was made from Maine apples. That was amazing. Um, we had that up in Belfast at my, one of my favorite places in Maine called Young's Lobster Pound. And Young's Lobster Pound. Pa- Laura's like saying these things and I'm literally 
writing every single one of them <laughs> down or just thinking or I'm looking at like the time and I'm like, okay, that's when she Young's Lobster Pound. Okay. Yep. And then we had a rhubarb wine, a wine made from rhubarb. That was another really, really great surprise. I did you just say grape surprise or grape no, surprise? No, I said grape. Okay. I, said grape. <laughs> I was like, she's taking it to a new level. That's a new level. I should have I said can't. That. I mean, then we just like a like a true mic drop. Like, okay. I mean, she ended it with a grape surprise. So we're good. Wow. Okay. So this is a new part of the column is a new part of your current role. Tell us about your current role. Tell us about the process of this. And then let's just, I mean. I'm not trying to brag here, but let's just just tell us who you are, okay? Because I feel like that's really critical for our audience to hear a little bit more about. Uh, <laughs> the hardest, literally the hardest question you could ever ask a woman, am I right? Like that's yeah, pretty, pretty much, much the most difficult pretty much. thing you could ever say. Okay, well, let's, we'll start slow. We'll start with your current role. What's okay. happening? Current role. So it. I've recently been promoted to the senior vice president of commercial operations for our artisanal wine divisions nationally for Southern Glazer Wine and Spirits. Yeah. This does make me feel a little <laughs> choked up when I, 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 I'm not going to lie. I feel a little emotional just hearing that because it's so fucking exciting. I mean, that's, and so epic and so much work that went into this and so much dead, like serious dedication in a way that where I multiple times in in hearing at any part of this process, I would have I would have a hundred percent been like, I gotta take a nap. I'm done with this. Or like <laughs> or like, yeah, okay. I mean this is and this is your baby. This entire this yeah, it's really a dream, a strategy, and a vision come yeah. true. You know, so I've been working in the fine wine space for 20 years, and prior to that, working as a sommelier in restaurants. I became a master sommelier in 2004, which I can't believe it's that long ago, but I became a master sommelier in 2004. Wow. Um, and about eight years ago, I moved, uh, maybe a little longer, maybe nine years ago, I moved into the boutique niche artisanal wine space. And I moved into distribution from supply. Mm. And so I was running first Florida for a mid-sized distributor doing a turnaround on a failing mid-sized distributor. And then through tuck-in acquisitions and a lot of hard work, I wound up running three states, three separate distributors, Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida. I left that company mm. and I had a dream, a vision, a white paper and presented a business plan to Southern Glazers to create a new artisanal wine focused selling division in Florida. And so they green lighted it. I started it. I built it. They watched it. Um, <laughs> it was very successful. Uh, and so Literally, right as the world shuts down in April of 2020, I get called into the C-suite, right? And I'm thinking, right. right? Like, <laughs> I just got called into the C-suite in person while we're in quarantine. This is not- This makes me want to sweat. I, I don't even know. I mean, yeah. you're like, were we masking at that point or not yet? We were April shut April 2020, down. yeah. April. We were literally in quarantine. Like the United States is shut down, right? Like we're all working remotely. Wow. All our restaurants are closed. Yeah. Like we're nationally shut down and I get called into the sous suite. It's essential personnel only. 
So I get called in and I'm thinking they're shutting us down, right? Yeah. Like, like they've got some type of forecasting and some, yeah. like, you know, expert ties to the CDC that's telling them the world <laughs> is going to look different and, and there's going to be no more on-premise and no more restaurants and no more artisanal wine. We're actually merging this division with the CIA. Yeah. And now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's going to a covert operation. Yeah. Okay. But instead, it kind of did go to a covert operation, actually. Wow. I get told, what you've done is extraordinary, and we want to take it nationally. And so we'd like you to work with our Office of Strategic Management for the next year and lay out the growth plan for this. And we will be creating two new executive positions corporately when we're ready, right? And yeah. uh, and we'll, we're going to move forward. So while I was doing my day job, right, which was running the distributor that I started in Florida and all the other stuff I do and dealing with COVID and furloughs yeah. and bringing people back and, you know, holding, oh, yeah. holding our restaurateurs hands as they're trying to reopen and find staff and all the difficulties that they've been having since reopening, I'm laying out this strategy nationally. So long story short, the positions were posted a year later. Um, I went through a very grueling, very long interview process. Yes. Um, and then landed. Yes, the she did, folks. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, a lot of check-ins from your here. husband. Yeah. <laughs> a lot yes. of moral support from your husband. Thank God for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Every time I think about this, and it's not even just talking to you, it's literally every time I've thought of this, it really does make me feel totally emotional because I, I think that it's already, first of all, what you just said is a part that I don't think I fully put together until now about the fact that this happened during the beginning of lockdown where you were about to get this enormous news. Yeah. But on top of all of that, I mean, this was your baby. You brought it into the world and then you were asked to bring it national. And so a couple of things I want to get into a little bit here. I am still not so clear. And, and hopefully you can explain this to us, us as in the collective we, even though currently <laughs> I'm alone in this room, but the collective us, which is that every state has their own alcohol distribution set of rules, right? Like, so the, so this is legislation. So that the, the yeah. idea of taking this national isn't just like, oh, cool. We did this in Florida. We can just do the same thing everywhere. It's completely, you have to do it 50 different ways in order, 100%. right? Okay. Yeah. You have to do it 50 different ways. And you also have to really look at the market, right? When you're right. dealing in this really rarefied space, which is, it is a rarefied right. space. You really have to look at, well, what's happening in the market? You know, like yeah. reality check, the East Coast consumes more imported wines in this space than the West Coast, right? The West Coast consumes more right. domestic wines, right? Because Makes total they sense. make wine, yeah. right? right? Okay. So the portfolios look different as well as you really want the personal touch and the expertise of the market to describe and inform the portfolio, the supplier alignment, um, and the route to market, right? And then each state has, of course, different legislation and laws. Yeah. And then each state has different operation capacity, right? So like running an operation in New York is very different. And I'm talking about logistics now mm. is very different than running an operation in a state like Florida or Texas, because New York is New York city, right? And yeah. 5% of the wine that's consumed, whether it's $5, 
box yeah. or $5,000 first growth Bordeaux, it's consumed in New York City. In Florida yeah. and in Texas, you've got major markets that are really far apart and one doesn't dominate the other, right? So like in Florida, 30% of the wine is consumed in South Florida. So Miami to Palm Beach, another 25% in Tampa, another 20% in Orlando, another 15% in Naples. I probably just either over did a hundred percent or under did a hundred percent, but you, know, you get the gonna, picture, right? I'm like, yeah, no, 35%. <laughs> but yeah. Texas is like that too, right? You've got Dallas, Austin, Houston, San right. Antonio, and these places are really far apart. So you have to figure out a logistic capability because these types of wines require special handling. And so not yeah. only did we come up with a strategy for the portfolio and the route to market, but we also came up with a strategy of temperature control, of special handling, and mm. really a very customer service oriented approach to these new divisions that were standing up. So we just stood up Texas. It opened our domain. It's called Domain and Estates is the name of the division. Um, we just stood up Texas 30 days ago. Um, and we've got, you know, we're putting the portfolio together. We've got the team in place. We've got the logistics done. And then we have earmarked like what we call the battlegrounds, right? So California, New York, Colorado, mm-hmm. Washington, DC, Chicago, those are our targets. Um, so I'll be standing those up during the course of 2022 and 2023. Yeah. Not busy at all. No, not at all busy. Not at all busy. What would you say is the definition? Like, how do we define, particularly in wine, and then we can see where this lands us elsewhere, but in wine, what is actually the definition of artisanal wine? That is like the most profound and excellent question you can ask. And that is exactly where we started when we started right. to lay out the strategy, right? Because you hear people say fine wine, right? Yeah. Well, your definition of fine wine and my definition of fine wine are two completely different so things. It's not standardized by anyone. This is no. not like, okay. No. Wow. Right? And so, so first, our Office of Strategic Management, which are a bunch of incredibly smart, incredibly educated MBAs from Harvard and Yale and London <laughs> School of Economics and Stanford. And I'm like, what am I doing with this group? Right. <laughs> I have an MFA in painting. What? <laughs> right. They're trying to do this numerically, right? They're trying to put a price yeah. point on this. And I'm like, Mm-mm, that's no. not it, right? So what we did was We defined it and how we defined it was not by price point, which is really what every metric does, right? Nielsen does this, everybody does this, it's all price points. And there's a million names, ultra premium, premium luxury, it's like nuts, right? It sounds like a credit card. It sounds like applying for like a a credit card membership program. It is, you know, so what we did was we looked at production, right? And we really defined it by production. So... We defined artisanal wines as wineries that produce 10,000 cases or less and do not have the ability to scale because you can't. You can't just like, it's not like vodka where you just make more, right? Right. Still and make more. I mean, with with wine, you can't do that. It's a living, growing agricultural product all over the world. And there's laws that define whether or not you can plant vineyards what grapes you can plant where, you know, what the borders are of your region. And then there's moratoriums on plantings in many places, Napa Valley, Burgundy, Barolo. You can't plant more. 
And the cost of acquiring vineyards for family-run wineries, it's exorbitant. It's impossible, right? So It's got to be insane. It's insane. Yeah. You can't do it. So we defined it that way and we limited it to that much wine comes to the state. So maybe you produce 15,000 cases, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a Sancerre producer or if you're a, a Bordeaux producer, but you're not sending it all to the U.S., Right. Right. So so we limited it to what comes into the United States, what is available to the United States to purchase and sell. And so that's really how we ultimately defined it. There's a a threshold of price point. And then also it's what's the mix of your selling. Right. Are you Mm. are you targeting the off premise, meaning retail? Right. Are you targeting chains or are you targeting the on premise? And so if you're targeting the on premise and your production is limited and it's true to the region you're coming from, right? It's authentically Sancerre or Barolo mm-hmm. or Napa Cab, then you fell into artisanal. If you were bigger, right, you fell into our division called Signature Luxury, which is a fine wine division. But yeah. We have it in almost every state and you fall into that world. And then okay. if it's an importer that has like some of both, it's what's your focus, right? Because mm. some importers do have artisanal lines, but we didn't want to break up importers because yeah. it's just too confusing and too difficult to manage for the importer as well as for us. That's the strategy, folks. Let's get to a quick listener question. Today's question is, which foods are alkaline? Should you drink alkaline water? Basic bitches of the world unite. I'm just kidding. But you see what I did there? So I'll just answer this first part before we get into any more details. pH aside, foods that are often considered to be higher pH, so more basic in nature, are real wholesome foods, including plants like obviously veggies and fruit, nuts and seeds, legumes, plant-derived oils, um, even seafood, which is obviously a marine source of protein, but is eating lots of greens from the bottom of the ocean, all of that good stuff. Foods that are more acidic are going to be ones that are higher in added sugar, saturated fat, and sodium. So more highly processed, they tend to have less fiber and unsaturated fats. A lot of what's out there, the marketing around alkalinity that promotes eating foods that are one of two things. Usually it's either alkaline in the chemical composition of the food, like broccoli, for example, and foods that are acidic by nature, but apparently (laughs) promote alkalinity in your body's cells, like lemons, which taste like total acid, battery acid, but are actually purported to promote alkalinity. But here's the thing. Okay, just base level, basic, just a basic overview. Now I'm going rogue. These broccoli and lemon, they're both produce. My point being that instead of focusing so much on the pH of a food, adding more produce to your meals and snacks is automatically making your meals more quote unquote alkaline. But thinking about it that way is actually really way more confusing than it needs to be. And here's why. First of all, meals and snacks can't actually change the pH of your blood. Eating any type of acidic or basic food is not going to affect your blood pH, which is the measure of acidity and alkalinity. Healthy adults typically have a pH of 7.4, which is a number that's considered slightly alkaline given that 7 is neutral on the pH scale of 1 to 14. So unless your kidneys or your lungs are impaired, the acid-base balance of your body doesn't actually move much at all one way or the other. 
And if it did, you wouldn't really be here to be listening to this podcast. I'm so sorry, Charles. So where exactly did this perception come from? Foods can have a temporary impact on cellular mineral content, which determines the acidity inside and outside of your cells. But it's very temporary and very nominal. We'll get into that in a second. The second thing is that if you have functioning vital organs, alkaline foods are are just totally redundant. The idea of an alkaline food is redundant, right? So in the same vein as something like cleanses, which touts an ability to rest your liver, alkaline diets or alkaline food products that claim to give your kidneys a much needed vacation are equally futile, right? Properly functioning kidneys are like your body's own filtration system. So you're going to excrete what you don't need, you'll retain what you do need, and you'll regulate your own pH level, which naturally fluctuates just a little bit in the same way, right? So when the ability of your kidneys to clean the bloodstream is truly impaired, it's often the result of them being overtaxed by a chronic condition over time, like high blood pressure, uncontrolled diabetes, that can lead to kidney failure, right? And if these things are left untreated, then they can cause a change in blood pH, which would, you know, like a good example of this, if you're diabetic, diabetic ketoacidosis, which occurs when the body cells can't take in sugar due to their either their lack of insulin or long-term insulin resistance. Okay, so it's a lot of jargon. But basically, while those conditions can and often are diet-related, their appearance isn't anywhere near as immediate as popular diet fads that are like, drink this alkaline juice or green juice or whatever. And of the moment, you know, like medical mediums of the world, I hate to throw shade, but I will. So just think about it, right? Like, In general, you have functioning organs and foods themselves are actually not going to change the pH of your blood. Then thinking about it, thinking about like eating more produce really just seems like, why don't we just call it eating more produce, eating more plants in general and call it a day, right? Here's what I like about anything related to alkalinity is that if you need a little gimmick, which there's no shame in that game, right? Like if you need a little gimmick to get you to eat more plants, seafood, whole grains, unsweetened, lower fat dairy products, nuts and seeds, I can get on board with this shtick, right? Another name for alkaline might as well be Mediterranean because that's essentially what this sciencey sounding shtick really is, but it's naturally gonna be higher in fiber higher in unsaturated fats. And another plus is is a naturally lower intake of sodium, sugar, and saturated fat from highly processed food sources. So good. Love it. Have a little shtick. It goes a long way. Okay. The cons, what's kind of stupid is the idea that the pH of a food is the be-all and end-all of what makes a food nutritious. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty big one. Um, it's really got nothing to do with it. And to the extent that it does, it's very minimal. I will say what I do often get asked about alkaline water Uh, You know, here's the thing. It's expensive, and that alone might be the reason to either help you hydrate or help you drain your bank account, which is kind of a bummer. So either way, you know, if you need, again, if you need a little shtick, I'm all here for that. So so go for it if it's something that you like the taste of or if you feel like it's getting you to drink more water, but not for the purported health benefits. Because an influx of electrolytes, which is usually what's making that water alkaline, the ones that are considered higher pH and more alkaline going into your GI tract, that can cause nausea, diarrhea sometimes. You might want to go easy on it if you find that you're sensitive to it. Also, if you feel like a placebo makes you feel better than non-alkaline water, that might be because of that (laughs) placebo effect, or it might be because the electrolytes added to that water and you're drinking it after like a really expensive boutique, but really intense workout, soul cycle. I'm just kidding. I just made that up. I haven't been to soul cycle in so long. I have no idea what it's like there, but totally fine, totally safe. I just feel like I have to remind you that you can also replete electrolytes with a fucking cheese stick or a banana. Or or an iced latte, you can call it a day. Bottom line, regular hydration, 
more plants. Really, that's what it's ultimately all about. But however it takes for you to get there, if you need a little shtick, a little gimmick, go for it. Forget lame claims about alkalinity and pH of foods because there's probably an upsell on the packaging for that. And because there's about 20 billion better reasons to eat more of these types of nutritious, satisfying foods than how basic they are. I did it again. I couldn't help it. Okay. All right. So for more on all things alkaline, check out the On The Side YouTube channel. But for now, let us get back to the episode. You don't want to insult anyone and say, right. mm, your wine's not quite good enough. Because in right. fact, it is, right? right. It probably right. is. But from a management standpoint, it's not feasible, right? right. Because, because you can't have one importer, for example, with three wines in this division and five wines in that division, because who's running it, right? Then, right, then it's just, right. It's just too like finger pointing and, or, and balls get dropped. And yeah. so we really had to be pretty steadfast. It's something that I had the luxury as I was piloting this in mm-hmm. Florida, I had the support around me and the luxury to be able to really have guardrails around that portfolio and around the build, right. Of the division. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm super appreciative of the support that I got in Florida and the belief that the company has in this project and the opportunity to take this nationally, because bottom line too is people want these wines, right? There's a consumer for these wines. Um, (laughs) You said you had me at 10,000 cases. I'm like, what's on this list? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we've proven that in Florida, right? And the importers that are dealing with this, they're not just starting up today. They've been in business 30, 40, 50 years. And so they've shown it, you know, there's a bottleneck that, that lives in distribution where the amount of wine coming into this country, it's not possible to get out to the, to the consumers yeah. and the amount of stores that we have. But this niche world is collectible. It's aspirational. It's romantic in a lot of yes. ways. Yes. Yeah. Know? It has its own story, its own mm-hmm. unique story, depending on what you're sourcing and where you're sourcing it from and who is the, what's the family that owns this land and what's the land actually like, what's the condition like. I mean, that's so interesting and exciting. And it also feels like the kind of thing that could never possibly get boring, which is really that much more exciting. It's what I love about wine, honestly. And it's, it's, you know, 20 years ago, when I sat in my first level one class and saw these master sommeliers speaking about wine in a way that I had never even thought about or considered, it was like this starburst in my head, you know, where all the things I love came together. But more importantly, I realized that no matter how much I learn and how much traveling I do and how many vineyards I'm visit and how many people I meet and how many stories I hear and tell, I'll never learn it all. Right. It's true. It's I'll the never best learn thing. It all. Um, and that's what yeah. I love, right. It's this yeah. constant learning. And I think that that keeps you excited in your job. I think it keeps you excited in your life. And yes. Young, you know, I think it keeps you, yes. it gives you energy. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. For our listeners, we got to go into the process of becoming a master som. Yep. 
So briefly, the process of becoming Master Sommelier is very rigorous and pretty brutal and very emotional, honestly, Yeah. for anyone who, who does it. So there's four levels, intro, okay. certified, advanced, and master, uh, a master diploma. So cool. intro is really an introduction to the process. It's a two-day survey class. You learn the blind tasting method. And you take a multiple choice test at the end. Certified is the next level. It's a one day test. And that's where you start to get a feel of how we examine. So you have a theory test, which is written. You have a blind tasting of four wines, two whites, two reds, which is written. And then you have a service exam where you're performing a task that a sommelier would perform in a restaurant and you're answering questions related to that service and to those wines and to the menu that we have in our restaurant. It's a mock restaurant setting. Then there's an advanced course, right? Which if you want to go on, you must take. Um, And that advanced course kind of preps you in a much deeper dive for blind tasting. We do a lot of practice blind tastings in groups, in small group settings. And then we do... The lectures differ every single time we do the advanced course. In fact, we just did one in Dallas over the summer and me and another master sommelier, Josh Nadell, did a lecture on Sicily. So we do a really deep dive with the tasting into a particular subject. And it just gives you kind of a, a deep dive into that subject, but it also gives you an example of how deep you need to go if you want to go on to the higher levels. So then the advanced exam is by application, and it's a three-part exam, six wines, 25 minutes, blind tasting, verbal, a written theory test, and a much more difficult service exam where you're moving around from station to station with different tasks, different questions. A business of the sommelier uh, test is there as well uh, in terms of costing and controls and things you need to know as a true wine director and business sommelier. And then ultimately the master sommelier exam. Um, and <laughs> I've, I, taken, I I've taken so right? many exams yeah. by the, just in hearing about this, I've taken a couple exams. So the pass rate at intro is about 95%. The pass okay. rate at certificates, about 55%. <laughs> the pass rate at advanced is about 30, which is up from when I took wow. it, which was 15. Oh my the God. pass rate at master is about 3 to 5%. And so that's where everything is verbal. So your theory exam is verbal and it's, you know, sitting in front of a panel of master sommeliers where we're asking you a series of questions, all verbal and it's timed. Um, the what, same- what's an example of a question that's getting asked in this setting? Just, just a um, random one. Yeah. Let me think of a random question that might be asked. What is the name of the wind that influences the sherry triangle and where does it come from? The wind? The no, wind. The wind. What is the name? What what is the, <laughs> the answer to this? It's the potente wind. The potente it comes, wind. It comes, from, it comes from the east off the coast of Africa. And I gotta cancel the rest of my day. I have a lot of research. <laughs> what? I didn't know. Yeah. This is the real deal. Yeah. yeah. 
because I'm thinking about this just even even at the beginning of our conversation is that so much of this is about the environment, is about like the climate, the environment. Oh um, yeah, oh yeah, um, for sure. So we we don't for, well for sure. Climate change has affected the wine industry and, and, and wine and farmers, yeah. and you cannot visit a wine region and not talk about climate change. Mm. You cannot everybody's talking about it, right? In California, they're talking about water issues with droughts and of course the fires, right? In, oh, in Europe, they're yeah. talking about flooding, right? Um, and hail. And, you know, 2021, this vintage is disastrous in Europe, yeah. right? I mean, Germany's wiped out by floods. Burgundy is wiped out by hail. Um, mm. Tuscany was wiped out by frost. Loire was wiped out by frost. Champagne is wiped out by frost. New Zealand is wiped no. out by flooding. I mean, it's <laughs> nuts. It's nuts what's going on. There's going to be no wine coming out of 2021. I'm buying <laughs> everything I can buy now. <laughs> okay, that's a pro tip. I just yeah. wanted, I, just, yeah. I heard okay. it. That's a pro tip. <laughs> buy it now. Right? Buy it now. Buy it now because oh. not only is there going to be no wine, it's going to be really expensive. Damn. So in terms of addressing that in the exam, we don't politically, right? Right. No. Um, yeah, of course. But we do when we ask vintage questions, right? Because you need, you need to know, right? Like you need to know that there was no Barolo in 2002. You need Why? to know. Why? What happened? Hail. 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 Yeah. Hail. Hail. Yeah. Hail just decimated the vineyards right before harvest. Wow. Yeah. You need to know that certain vintages in Champagne or in Port are not declared in certain mm. years. Or what are spectacular vintages, right? Like 2016, 2018, these vintages in Europe were like, every winemaker would tell you, please, I would take that vintage every single year if I could. I did nothing, right? I got these yeah. gorgeous grapes and I did nothing, you know, because they were so perfect. Everybody will say that. So we address it that way um, right. because because as a, a master sommelier, you know, a true expert, you need to know that. Right. You need to know, like, what vintages are sought after, what vintages are collectible, what vintages are unavailable, what vintages do you need to stock up on because mm. you're going to have a shortfall. So we address it that way. OK, so first for our listeners here, how many master sommeliers are there in the world, Laura? Well, we, we just graduated two, like yesterday, <laughs> two more. <laughs> um, in the world, I think there's maybe 250. I honestly don't know the real number. I know there are 30 women in the world. 30 women. Okay. Yeah. I know that for a fact. That's its own mic drop, right? You know what that makes me want to do? It makes me want to drive by Reds and go like this. <laughs> it's, a, I, <laughs> it's the middle, it's the... Middle finger at Reds. What was the name of the Facebook page? Reds the finger. It gave Reds the finger. It's like, that's it. That's yep. it, folks. 30, 250 in the world, just about, and 30 of whom are women. Because yeah. that because that's what this is. Which is really such a testament to you and also such a testament to the fact that also you are a true genius. Let's be honest. I mean, the potente win. Did I say that right? What's yeah. happening? Yeah. <laughs> okay. But also, I mean, what a true, what a true boys club. I, I, I think it's, you know, to have started something on your own and to have then been called in to the C-suite for a meeting during 
lockdown <laughs> during the pandemic yeah. to yeah. say, we want you to take this nationally. And now here you are doing it and you've set up this framework to actually make this happen and bring it into reality is beyond impressive, but also beyond exciting because exa it's exactly what you said. Anytime you have the chance to like really learn something new every day, there's nothing more exciting than that. I mean, there really isn't. It, no, it's I beyond. Mean, honestly, there really isn't. And you know, the, the truth is that when I decided that I was going to really pursue it, right. Not the master sommelier diploma, I didn't know where it would lead. And I also decided that I was going to leave restaurants and yeah. step onto the business side. And I didn't know what, right. I didn't know if I wanted to go into distribution. I didn't know if I wanted to work for a winery. I didn't know if I wanted to be a supplier. I really didn't know. So I interviewed around um, and I had, I was fortunate to have several different offers in all of those. And ultimately I chose working for Palm mm -hmm. Bay on a gut instinct. And that's of course where I met Michael, your husband, yeah. you know, we started our careers together yeah. pretty much. Uh, and once I stepped into the business, I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. But it was a boys club, you know, yeah. for, for many years, I was the only woman in the world in the room for many years, for my entire career at Palm Bay. And then when I stepped into distribution, I think I was the first or one of the first, for sure one of the first, but maybe the first female general manager of a distributor in a major market, full on general manager. And for sure, I am the first senior vice president at Southern Glazers um, nationally in commercial operations. Uh, for That's. sure. So, you know, it, it's, and, and it's interesting too, because when I had my tenure run at Palm Bay, which I absolutely adored, the gentleman that I reported to who is sadly deceased mm -hmm. was a real mentor to me. And after mm -hmm. I passed the master sommelier exam, he called me into his office and this is 2004. And at that time I was national sales director for fine line. Mm -hmm. I had two promotions and he said to me, you have two choices. And I said, okay. And he said, and we will do either, but it's your mm -hmm. choice. What do you want to do? And so he laid it out and he said, you can either stay on the business track, right? And continue to develop your career on a business track, or you can be a personality and we will promote that. And I was like, no, 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 no. I want, I want the business track and I want to be that groundbreaker. And I want to be that female leader that breaks glass ceilings and is a leader and mentor for other women coming up in the business. And he was absolutely. Like, yeah, absolutely. And he was like, great. So pretty, a couple of years after that, I was promoted to vice president of fine wine and I got a seat at the table and was you know part of the executive team and really had a lot to learn. Really, really had a lot to learn as well as when I, when I left and then stepped into distribution, really had a lot to learn. Um, and, you know, it's gratifying to see so many more women in senior roles nationally, whether it's in distribution or supply or wineries. And it's doubly gratifying to see the real push on diversity because in truth, yeah. the beverage industry, right? Whether no matter what it was, whether it's wine or it's spirits or it's beer right. has been behind the times. 100%. But it's really so commendable, but also so terrifying to think about what it's like to to always. I mean, at a certain point, I would imagine you feel 
a little bit used to it, right? You're like, okay, I am the, here I am again, the only woman in this room. Yeah. <laughs> like, is there, it I don't even wasn't want. Fun. I, I yeah. have to say, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. And I felt like I always had to prove myself. Totally. When I was in that room as a credible business totally. leader, as opposed yeah. to, and, and sometimes I felt like being a master sommelier actually worked against me, right? Because I, I walk absolutely in there, right? I walk to in that, that room yeah. and, you know, I'd be the only female and then I would be like, okay, they're looking at me like I'm fluff because I'm the only female and I have this master sommelier diploma, you know, and it really, really messed with my imposter syndrome, right? Oh my like, God. Big yes. time. So you know, for sure there were impressions that I made that maybe weren't the best, you know, the best of me sometimes because I was too intent on making an impression. And it took me a while to find my voice. It took me a while to find, uh, to be able to trust my instincts, Mm. to, um, be able to find my voice that, you know, you would get knocks like, Oh, too emotional or my favorite code word for bitch, which Mm -hmm. is, She's difficult, right? I can't. I, mean, I can't. There, right? Like every time I hear someone describe, I'm triggered. I'm about to go under the desk. Right? A woman is difficult. I'm like, are you trying to say she's a bitch? Really? Well, really? let's talk about that. Right? Like, right. what is it exactly that you find difficult? Um, What's well, so difficult for you that you can't look up for three more minutes to actually figure it out instead of calling it difficult? Would you prefer simple? Yeah. Really? Exactly. So, you know, so I didn't have any guard, you know, I didn't have any, any role models or, or any, any one to really ask that question. I'll never forget. I'll never, ever forget. So I get hired by Palm Bay and my first position is Italian wine specialist for the state Mm. of Florida. And my boss at the time is a pretty great guy career, a little bit sketchy, um, (laughs) but a pretty great guy. And I remember sitting down with him and, you know, he really did want the best for me and and for me to succeed. And, and, and he did set me up for success. And I remember sitting down with him like pretty early on saying to him, how am I ever going to do this? How am I ever going to advance my career? How am I ever going to be successful in these particular channels? I'm not going to a strip club. I'm not going golfing. No, no one wants me there anyway. I right. don't like hanging out at a bar. Right. Doing what? I don't want to do you know, Like exactly. Me. Right. Yeah. And he just looked at me and he said to me, I really don't know what to tell you, but I know you're going to figure it out. And that was his best advice that he could give me. And it was sincere and it was from the heart and it wasn't a, a blow off. It was like, yeah. I don't really know what to tell you because I'm not you and I've never had to do that, right? I have gone to the racetrack or gone golfing or done this outing, you know, and, and every every meeting I was in, they come up with an incentive and it was like, oh, tickets to the blah, blah, blah game. Well, I'm a huge sports fan, huge, right? right? I play fantasy football. I'm an idiot right. that comes right. to sports, all that stuff. But <laughs> I'm like, no, no. how about if we give out like iPhones when they came out? Right, like, I mean, what? like, come on. Like, what if we had a deal with Apple? 
Hey everyone, quick note from yours truly, the host of the On The Side podcast. It's me, Jackie London. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for being a part of this, and for starting this journey with me. I am brand new to the podcasting space, and I would love to get the word out there about the On The Side podcast. I'm so loving doing this. I am enjoying it more than anything else, and I love hearing from interesting guests and answering your questions. So if you're enjoying it too, please, feel free to take a screenshot and post it to your social media platform and tag me at Jacqueline London RD. You can also, if you're not on social media and you're listening to this right now, then please take a screenshot and share the link to the episode wherever you're getting your podcasts and share it with three friends. How about that? Just three, maybe three family members, maybe just three people you know who might learn something new or feel like they're inspired to start sharing this a little bit more. I would love to get the word out there about the podcast and I would really, really love your help in doing so. So please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and share your feedback with me. I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to hear what you think and what you're loving so far and what you'd love to hear more of. You can reach me on any social media platform at Jacqueline London RD, or you can email me info at JacquelineLondonRD.com. And I can't wait to hear from you and hear your thoughts so far. All right, let's get back to the episode. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, yeah. right. Concert tickets. Right. right. Or something. <laughs> right. And they would just look at me like, what? Um, but you know, the, the boss and then mentor that I had for for seven years or eight years at Palm Bay really helped me find my voice. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we would call it dentist coaching, right. Mm -hmm. And and we would talk at least twice a week at seven 30 in the morning, no matter where he was. And no matter where I was, we would, we would schedule a time and we would talk and we would spend a half an hour. And when I had made a mistake or I had overstepped or I had, you know, not quite gotten something or, or whatever, he would say to me, okay, a little dentist coaching. And I would say, yes, please. You know, and he would lay it out. Right. And it was just, Amazing. First of all, the fact that he even asked that way makes me literally feel like <laughs> I'm actually yeah. tearing up. Like to ask that first, right? Instead of launching into the, here's what I'm going to tell you, Laura, right? Like that's just, that's yeah. so respectful. And yeah. and so feels a little bit in the most upsetting way, like elusive. Like where, who are, where are those people now? You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're hard to find. They are hard um, to find. And, and I try to, I try to do that now. Right? Yes. You know, like so those people, people are right here. Yeah. On this, on the other side of my zoom. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, and for people that report to me or people that I'm informally mentoring or formally mentoring, because I do both, you know, I'll say, okay, a little Laura coaching, right. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I adopted from, from Dennis. And I have to say much to my absolute delight, my current boss and my new position is the executive vice president of fine wine and she, Cindy Leonard, yes. is a she. Cindy. So she is also a groundbreaking female in our industry. And, and I've known her for a while. We've never worked together. We just kind of orbited around each other, you know, yeah. in this very big company that we work for. But she was promoted about four months before I was. And so I was thrilled for her. Um, yeah. and, and I'm thrilled to be collaborating with her. It's it's been spectacular so far. 
That's truly epic. I mean, it's truly epic. And also it shows something that in thinking about some of the retro-isms that come up so often in the conversation about women and in industries where there is so much scarcity of women in leadership positions, the, the fact that she took that role and that how exciting that must have felt is the exact opposite of what some mediocre idiot man would be like, oh, maybe it's going to get difficult. Now it's going to be bitchy. It's going to be a bitch fest over in that part, right? Like that, that there's that stereotype when it couldn't be more polar opposite from that, which is, no, this is one of us in a leadership position in one little moment in time rises the tide. I mean, that rises, yeah. all ships rise to the top. Like exactly. it, it really is the most exciting and the most exciting time for you to be able to actually champion this and do what you love. I know it's like, it's a totally different thing, but I, that really resonates with me, what you were saying about how you felt like in business, being the expert as a woman sometimes makes you feel like the smallest person in the room and or like you're the show pony like I I remember one time maybe it was earlier this year someone referred to me as the talent and that to some people right exactly I mean Laura's making a face that is exactly how I that was exactly my face and I I like couldn't control it I felt like I was about to cry like when when I was referred to that way I felt like no no I'm sorry. I did not go through four years of a graduate program, redo my entire undergraduate program in order to get here to have you introduce me in a professional setting as the talent. I, that's yeah. that's not what this is. And I feel like that feeling of of being afraid to speak or once you do speak, being told, okay, just let's table that for now or speak less or do less That that is so confusing and conflict like that is what feeds the imposter syndrome is the feeling yeah. that you don't know who to be half the time even though you were being yourself <laughs> yeah I just, I, you know I, I really we have a, a diversity mentorship program that actually I started in Florida for Southern Glazers and now we have a much larger mentorship and, and sponsorship program yeah um and it's one of the things that, so I'm in my second cycle of mentor, right. of formally mentoring somebody. My first person was female. My second mm. person that is being mentored now is male. And it's a lot of the same issues, right? And, mm-hmm. and, it, and you know, as a mentor, you learn a lot, right? Yeah. Um, but part of what I really preach is... Yeah finding your authentic voice, right? Mm. Trusting your instincts and, you know, and really heavily preparing, right? So when you're preparing for a business meeting or you're preparing for a presentation or a pitch or an executive summary or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. right? That you really need to be heavily prepared and you really need to think outside the box for the questions that you didn't think of so that you're prepared for them and practice, of course, Mm -hmm. especially if one of the things you're struggling with is executive courage, right? Managerial courage. And, you know, I've never been shy that way, right? Um, <laughs> that's uh, true. Right? That's fair. Never, never, that's, ne- fair. that's never been an issue for me. Yeah. But for sure, imposter syndrome has been, right? Yeah. And I didn't even, I, I, it wasn't called imposter syndrome. Right. It was, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that term. Right. But as soon as I read a book or listened to a podcast, I was like, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. It's like the, um, it's like a true light bulb where you're like, yeah. oh, there's a name for that feeling. <laughs> and part of it was Thank God. being the only part, and part of it really stemmed from being the only person that looked like me in the room. Yeah. Um, because it reinforced it. Right? right. Like it just reinforced it. So now, you know, as I step into this new role and my boss, but my partner in crime, right, mm-hmm. my collaborator is also female we are really setting a different stage and we have discussed many times Mm -hmm. over bottles of wine and over the phone and, you know, driving and all of that and traveling together. What is it that we want to say? Right. What is it that we want to say? And what is the culture that we're building? And that Mm. is as important to us as female leaders and as leaders that the legacy we leave behind is this culture of inclusiveness, this culture of learning, this culture of caring, you know, and it's as important as the success of the business to us. A thousand percent. Um, And so that I think is a little bit different. And I'm seriously thrilled and proud to work for a company that has endorsed it Mm -hmm. and is putting their money where their mouth is right? It's not, it's not just lip service. It's real. I'm so excited about that. I mean, thank God for you. That's wow. amazing. And, <laughs> and for Cindy and for the fact that that's what bravery looks like. I mean, really, I mean, because it's not easy. And I think it's easy to not feel feelings when you hear about anyone, no matter who they are doing something that is so outside of the box but I think we get into this pattern of doing this dismissal of something as, oh, that's amazing. Or, oh, that's so, that's really cool. But I could never do that. Rather than thinking like, you can do it. There's a real strategy to it, but you have to be willing to really learn and really prepare and really know your stuff so that then you can bring this unique value proposition to literally anything that you're doing. I mean, it's just like, it's really, really exciting. I'm so excited for you. Okay. I know that we are running low on time. So I have two last questions for you. One of which is a segue into the other. I I think probably the worst question that I could ask you and the most annoying question. I'm not, I I barely want to say it out loud, but the most annoying question I could probably ask you is what's your favorite? What would be your favorite if you had to pick? I'm not going to ask that, but with that in mind, here's what I want to ask. So like, let's say favorite story between 2020 and 2021. That's a hard one because we did have a pandemic. (laughs) A hard one of like a family vineyard or this winery that is in this location at this end of the earth part of the world. And they have the most amazing blank. What is there anything that has stuck out to you as like the most crazy esoteric, but amazingly delicious and so good with this type of food or something like that, that you're thinking like, this is the story that I can't forget about right now. Well, I haven't really done a lot of vineyard traveling in 2020 and 2020. Truth. Okay, maybe we need to expand this to 2018. Let's <laughs> so go back to 2018. I'm going to go to 2019. I'm going to okay. go to 2019. Okay, so I am in love with Alto Piemonte, right? So Alto Piemonte is North Piedmont, right? So when wine people think about Piedmont, they automatically go, oh, Barolo, oh, Bares- Barbaresco, right. amazing, amazing, amazing. They are indeed. Absolutely. Been there a million times. Love the wines, love the people, love it, love it, love it. However, you get in your (laughs) car and you drive north. 
about eh, not really that long, an hour and a half, two hours, you come into this region called Alto Piemonte, North Piedmont, back in the ancient times. Well, ancient not really days. Ancient, right? But back in the 1800s, this was actually the largest wine producing region in Italy. This is where, like, when they talk about where Nebbiolo came from, it's here, right? This is yeah. the line of, and as textiles became more important in the world, all the vineyards were ripped out, factories were put there, and these really rich, spectacular silks and wools came out of this area. This is um, the town of Biella, where Ferragamo is, and this is, and this is where they all got their fabrics from. And so the vineyards were ripped out and you went from 700,000 acres of vineyards down to 800 remaining. And so there's two DOCGs up here, Gatanera and Gamme. But on the other side of the river is really the land that time forgot. And you have a region up here called La Sona. And it literally went down to one winery, one winery remaining. And it was owned by the bank, the largest bank in all of Italy. And they kept the winery only because they would produce large format bottles and give them as gifts to their best clients. This is what it went down to. Today, you have a few wineries that are sprouting up in Lusona. One of my favorite is Proprieta Sparino. It's owned by the DeMarchi family that also owns a spectacular estate in Tuscany called Isole e Olena. And this is my favorite area to visit. It's extreme. Um, it's high altitude. The soil, when you walk in, it sparkles because they're so like glitter. Like somebody took a box or a tube of glitter and just kind of spewed it all over the dirt oh, cool. because it's all this mineral that's there. There's no calcium in the water. Also, the greatest pizzas are up here, too, because there's no right. calcium in the water, and pizza happens to be. Have they thought top. about bagels? Have <laughs> they thought about bagels? They don't make okay. bagels up there, but they right. should, right? They should. <laughs> the greatest pizza, though, ever. And this area just speaks to me in so many ways. It's yeah. wild. You know, the vineyards were abandoned because the textiles have left too, right? So the vineyards have been abandoned. So it's very forested. And if you walk into like a forest and not that far, yeah. maybe 10, 20 feet, there's a good chance you'll see a grapevine kind of like hanging on <laughs> for real life. Like, I'm still here. I'm still here. Do not forget about me. <laughs> but then, exactly. But the Nebbiolo, so it's mostly Nebbiolo up here. Um, same grape as Barolo and Barbaresco. Yeah. Some other local grapes, Croatina, Vespaola. But the Nebbiolo up here has this aromatic lift and freshness to it that you don't find in Barolo and Barbaresco, it's, it's unique. And honestly, it is climate change that has brought this area back to life because wow. it, it used to be too cold, right? Which yeah. is part of why the vineyards were abandoned as well. But now because it's, it's warmer, right? right. You know, it, it, the average temperature is warmer here. They're able to produce incredible wines. That's the highlight right there. That is, I also have a true image of what this lone rogue vine looks like like, <laughs> yeah, like, like right. I literally I'm like I'm like I can picture that with the sparkling soil and the perfect calcium free <laughs> water that 
could presumably rot your teeth, but that's okay <laughs> because you'd have pizza and bagels. If yeah, you want to, you know, if we want to just do a DOCG bagel <laughs> from the region. <laughs> wow. Cool. Okay. All right. I'm not going to hold you captive for too much longer. I'm just going to ask you our final question, which I know is going to be epic coming from you, which is your perfect day of eating. If you could go anywhere, if you have your little jet plane that takes you from one area of the world to another, what's breakfast, what's lunch, what's dinner, where are your desserts coming from? And are we getting wine from Alto Piemonte or where else are we going to drink from? Okay. So we're getting on our jet and we're flying to Italy. We got to start the morning. Yeah. We're going to Italy and we are getting in a car and we're stopping at an auto grill. Oh yeah. On the autostrada and we're having a cappuccino. Thank you. Okay. That's first. And it's from the auto grill and it's a real auto grill. It's not like a fake one. And it's not a my chef or any of the other stuff on the side of the road. It's an auto grill. And hopefully it's an old style one. Um, I saw on Instagram that somebody just got married there at an auto grill. They posted it. Cool. I follow auto grill on Instagram (laughs) because I love auto grill so much. Hang on. Here's where I'm going right now. I've had enough. I got to get to auto grill. That's it. Okay. Okay, we're having cappuccino. We're starting with cappuccino. That's my personal yeah. favorite way to start. Yep. And Let so me just maybe, say that. maybe we're also going to have um, a little donut, right? Yeah. That mm-hmm. they have there as well. Maybe, maybe okay. not. Depends. Then we are going to go up to a town in Alto Piemonte called Candelo. Okay. Um, and we're going to have pizza, right? Ugh. We're going to have pizza, but we're going to bring a wine, maybe the Lasona from Proprieta Sparino, but we also probably might have a, which will be the perfect wine pairing, mm. but just because this is like Holy Grail stuff, I yes. might bring a bottle of Armand Rousseau Chambertin from Burgundy or a Domaine du Jac Nuit Saint-Georges. Just because. Just because. Because why not? Because we can, right? Because we can. Yes. Okay. So we're not having dessert there. Okay. Okay. What did we have for lunch? We had pizza. Pizza. Do we have anything else with the pizza? No. No. Just, and what kind of, we're going, we're just going your straight classic margarita margarita style. Yes. Classic margarita pizza. Thank you. Why ruin it? Why ruin a good thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then we're getting back on the jet. (laughs) And we're flying to Charleston. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I thought I thought we were going to stay in the EU. I'm excited. Let's yep. go. Let's go. We're here. We go back to Charleston. Okay. And we're going to Leon's Oyster Bar, and we're having some hot fried chicken with some wow. grower champagne. We're having a bottle of grower champagne, some Vilmar, um, which okay. is my current favorite right now, with fried chicken. And that's what I love that combination so much. Wait, so what a grower champagne? Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. Okay. What does that mean? So when you think about champagnes, right? When you think about the brands that you see everywhere, Laurent Perrier, Moet Chandon, those are called negociants, right? They're buying their grapes and making lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of bottles of champagnes. Right. Grower champagnes are, I own my vineyards and making champagne from my vineyard. So they're vintage variants, so they're not making to a style, they're making to a vintage. They're an extra layer of flavor. They're more wine-like in terms of nuance and subtle. And in my opinion, they're extra delicious. Um, So Vilmar, 
or Vilmar, but Vilmar is a producer of Grower Champagne and it's my current favorite. And it's really got high levels of acid and bright fruit and lots of bubbles, of course, but the bubbles and the fruit flavors combined with the hot Spicy, fatty, chicken is so delicious. (laughs) It's super delicious. That combo is everything. That combination is everything. Okay. Are we having dessert at Leon's? No. Not yet. No. Nope. They do offer soft serve ice cream. It's their only dessert with sprinkles, which is quite delicious, but no, we're not having that. We're getting back on the jet. I'll have a little taste to go. Okay. (laughs) We're getting back on the jet. And we are flying to Boston. We'd fly okay. to Sicily if we could, but I think we're running out of time in one day. So we'd yeah. just take the jet to Boston and we'd go okay. to Modern Bakery and we'd have a true Sicilian cannoli. Oh my God. It just, I, a Sicilian cannoli I didn't see coming here. I, I, <laughs> there's nothing better to me than cannoli cream. What is he- more heavenly than cannoli cream? At Modern Bakery in Boston. Modern Bakery. Or Modern Pastry. Sorry, Modern Pastry. Modern Pastry. pastry. Called Modern Pastry. Yeah, it's the best cannoli in the United States, I think. I really do think it is. It's the closest to Sicily. They get the crispiness of the shell, right, and the savoriness of the shell with the correct amount of cheesy, sweet, little bits of chocolate in the cream. (laughs) I it's just like drooled. I just drooled. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. maybe if we feel like we still need an alcoholic beverage, then we would have we a Lambrusco, a Dolce Lambrusco. So a Lambrusco that's a little fizzy, very grapey, and a little bit sweet, but not too sweet. Do we have time for dinner? I mean, what <laughs> if we got hungry again? I mean, we're stuffed, but I mean, we could, we could get peckish. We could just be feeling a little peckish later on. It's possible. Oh, well, then Maybe we have to fly to Argentina. Okay. That's so good. We're, that works we're for me. We're flying to Argentina. We're okay. going to Mendoza and we're going to Francis Malman's because they'd be open this late, right? Because it's Argentina. Yes, they <laughs> don't need dinner until midnight, right? So we're just on, we're just on Argentina time. We're just like That's on a 24 it. hour eating right. Day, right? Yes. So then we're going there. And we are having an Argentinian steak, right? It's Ooh. called a, the, the tapa cut, which they don't yeah. do in the United States, which is kind of like the tenderloin and the ribeye had a baby. So it has like not the fat content or the actual visible fat that ribeye has, but it has the deep, rich, fatty flavor that a ribeye gives you, but it's leaner. And so we're having that that's been cooked in the classic way on the spit, like you see in Argentina. What are we drinking with that? Well, you know, if we're in Argentina, we're having a really great Malbec, which would be amazing. But because this is, you know, fantasy land, we probably yeah. bring okay. like a 10-year-old classified left bank Bordeaux, like maybe a Lynch Bage 2010, wow. or which is a great vintage, or a Ponte Canet, maybe. Or maybe we would just go for broke and bring, like, you know, a first growth like Lafitte or Latour or Chateau Margaux. Because we could. Because we could. And we if could. not, we could always have it on the jet on our way if we That's needed true. to. That's true. I'm wondering if there's room for a Huckleberry Margarita. But- <laughs> That was perfection. I cannot thank you enough, Laura. This was an incredible interview. And I feel like the sky is 
truly the limit, not to make it all about our jet, but the sky's the limit, space is the limit because <laughs> this is really, this is fully your year, even if it's not the vintage year, but I'm so excited for you. And I, I so appreciate your time and the fact that you were able to join us and share all of these amazing food memories and stories and about your incredible badass career. So where can we find you? Should we need to reach you? Can we follow you on Instagram? What, where would you want to direct us? I also want you to shout out where you're writing the food diaries. So, well, first of all, congratulations on your podcast, Jackie. And thank you so much for including me. I really enjoyed it and had a great time. I hope your listeners do too. You can find me on Instagram at Laura Pasquale, And I am writing for a publication called Terroir Sense Wine Review, also on Instagram and has its own website as well. It's an online publication and it's pretty awesome. And Ian Dagata, who is... Italian, well, wine expert extraordinaire, close friend, and someone who I'm constantly learning from is the uh, is the editor and col- and of course main writer. And it's really if you're into wine and food, you should be following him and subscribing. Or if you're not, I mean, maybe you could get there. This way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Laura, thank you. Thank you, Jackie. so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jacqueline London RD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers.